Genesis chapter 3. You may turn there now. Some of you are familiar with the name Albert Moeller. Um, I call him Al because we're on a first name basis. No, actually not. We met one time. Uh, Dr. Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I listened to a message that he delivered to the chapel service this past week, or maybe it was a few weeks ago, to the students there at Southern Seminary. And it had a pretty provocative title. And the title of his message was, Does God Really Kill People? That was, that was, the, that was the title of the message. Now, let's be honest for a second. We cringe just a little bit, don't we? When someone says something like that out loud, particularly in our very modern and updated and sophisticated age of 2019, but, but come on, this is not an academic question. You know, we have been preaching through the book of Genesis, and we believe that this Bible, all of it, the Old and New Testaments, is the Word of God. It's, it's our ultimate authority. Ultimately, it doesn't, doesn't matter about my take or my opinion or yours we all stand under the authority of God's Word. And one of the things that we can't get past as we preach through God's Word, as we go through the book of Genesis, is how many people die at the hand of God. Onan and Tamar, Ur, the firstborn of Judah, who can forget Lot's wife? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably remember hearing about Sodom and Gomorrah and the firestone and brimstone that rained down upon that city and Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt. We hadn't even gotten to Genesis chapter 6 and the flood, right? Where millions are seemingly punished by death at drowning this flood that God sends as a judgment upon the earth. And so some have responded to this, and, and, and you may have been swimming in these waters yourself and heard different authors, pastors, blog writers say something like this. Well, you know, Pastor Paul, that's all well and good, but we know better now. See, that's the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is this sort of tribal deity. And this was just sort of the Israelites, you know, kind of ancient, primitive way of understanding who God was and that he was the warrior God. And this is sort of, this is sort of religion from a human perspective. But, but now we have Jesus, right? Jesus, meek and mild, in the New Testament. But yet, seemingly, the story doesn't change much when you turn there. Because Jesus Christ, as the fullest revelation of God, presents himself as the same holy, righteous God in the New Testament as he does in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 5, we read about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, putting to death Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 12, Herod dies a rather gruesome death. And with kids in the audience, we won't go into too much detail about that. But Revelation 19, which gives us maybe the clearest picture we have in all of Scripture of Jesus, paints this portrait of Jesus at the end of the age, when he is coming to judge the nations in his holy wrath. Let me read it for us. From his mouth, talking about Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, this idea of God killing someone seems offensive, seems repugnant. We're much more sophisticated for that. This is just, this is uncouth, this is primitive, this is, this is tribal. But you know, it only is offensive, it's only repugnant if we assume the inerrant goodness of humanity as our starting point. You see, when, when, we, when we start with ourselves, when we put ourselves at the center of our theology, then yes, all of this is just gobbledygook and, and makes no sense and in fact is offensive and something to be cast aside. However, as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3, if a holy God, if a righteous God is our starting point, well, that changes the equation entirely, doesn't it? If it's God who is the central character in this story, if it's God as the Alpha and the Omega, the Sovereign, the Righteous, the Holy, the True, if He is actually the central actor in this story, then God's response to sin makes all the sense in the world. And as we're going to see from the text today, we're going to find out just how serious sin is to God and by extension, just how serious sin should be to us. But even more importantly, we got, we, we're going to see a portrait of what God will go to, the extent to which he will go, in order to remedy the problem that you and I have, that we could never fix, but only he could. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, 11 verses, 14 through 24. And I'm going to invite you to stand. And if you're new to Four Oaks, the reason we stand... Um, when we read God's Word, it's not out of ceremony. It's not out of tradition. It's just a symbolic statement to say we stand under the authority of God's Word. And ultimately, it's not about what, what I think, what you think. It's about what God says in His Word. So we're going to begin in verse 14. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten of the apple and sinned. And this is God's pronouncement for them. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he write its truth upon our hearts. You may be seated. The title of this message are the three points of this sermon, so we're going to keep it simple. Three things I want you to note about this text. First, there's a curse. Then there is an expulsion. And finally, and most importantly, there is a promise. Now, as we look at this idea of curse, if you do ask your average American to define curse... He or she might talk to you about cursing, right? Like using a four-letter word or a naughty word you shouldn't use. Or some of the the youth among us, and by youth I mean all the grown-up adult nerds. Some of you might point to curse and talk about Harry Potter and incantations and wands that you paid way too much money for at Universal Studio. I don't know. But biblically, we need to understand something. Curse is not a peripheral theme in the Bible. In fact, Curse is a central truth, it's a central idea, and it has its origins in these verses. Now, to help us better understand what we mean or what the Bible means by curse, I think it might be helpful first to look at its biblical counterpart, which we're probably much more familiar with, this idea of blessing. Remember that it was only a few weeks ago that we preached through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, and we said that this idea of of blessed are you, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is a way of Jesus pronouncing blessing. It's, It's his way of saying, these are the people in this life who are flourishing. And now I'm speaking favor, I'm speaking grace, I'm speaking mercy upon them. Blessed are you. Well, we can think about even numbers, for example, and this idea of blessing stems throughout the Bible. And so number six, this is a benediction. You might be very familiar with it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, a number of years ago, the pastoral team, we were in Louisville at a together for the gospel conference, and we got to hear um, Dr. R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord. He preached on Galatians 3, this idea that Jesus became a curse for us. And in fact, we, we read this passage earlier in the service. And, and one of the things that Dr. Sproul did was to, to kind of really accent this idea of curse to help us get the full weight of it. Because let's be honest, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a distant journey between modern-day 21st-century Western culture and biblical times. And so it, it helps us to kind of the best we can to sort, of, to sort of marinate in this a little bit. And here is the way R.C. Sproul sort of reconfigured Numbers chapter 6 to make it not a blessing, not a benediction, but a curse, a malediction, just so that we can get the full weight of this. And here's what he said. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. 
May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. I bet you never colored that Sunday school coloring page growing up, did you? You see, curse is God's righteous response to sin. To, to curse someone, to bring a curse, is to, is to bring an invocation of God's judgment for an offense committed. But, but the thing that needs to grab your attention and my attention in this passage, this is not one curse being hurled upon someone by another human being. This is a curse pronounced by God himself. And because it's pronounced by God himself, it carries the full weight of who he is and of certainty and of power that he means what he says. And so let's look at verse 14. His first curse is on the serpent. Now we traditionally, as as Christians, Orthodox believers, affiliate the the serpent with Satan, and this is found any, any number of places in Scripture. For example, Revelation 20, and he, and speaking of Jesus, and he sees the dragon, that ancient, what is it, serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And one of the things that, that God is saying here, or one of the curses that he is, he is placing on mankind is that there is going to be enmity between Satan and the human race. So in other words, Satan has been given dominion over this world for a time, for a season. He's prowling, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to conquer and devour. And he is at the root of all enmity between people and one another. And that word enmity literally means hostility. That mankind's relationship to itself, to its world, to everything around it is going to be one of intense struggle. Now, the the Hebrew word is in the imperfect, which gives this idea of an ongoing struggle. In other words, this is not a one-time battle. This is is not like, well, I kind of dealt with enmity in my life yesterday, but today I'm good. Or I kind of cleaned out all the, the hatred in my heart you know, a couple of years ago and I had a salvation experience and now that's all gone. No, no, no. There's going to be this ongoing relational war going on in our souls and between one another. It's going to be ongoing. It's, it's, it's perpetual as long as we live on this earth. It's like a long-term, lifelong MMA, mixed martial arts for the, okay, for, for, for the elderly, mixed martial arts, in the octagon, duking it out, that's going to be our experience. You may have heard it said rather, you know, cynically on a bumper sticker, life is hard, then you die, right? That's, that's, that's the curse. And there's two sort of aspects here this text highlights for us that the curse impacts us in two particular ways. Now, let me say this. This is universal in nature, in other words, this is, these are not just conditions or curses that fall upon non-Christians or people out there. It's universal. It falls upon all of us. And unless we're aware of that, unless, we're, unless we come to terms with that, that this life is going to be a great struggle, and there is a great hope and a promise, and we'll get to that, then life is going to continually disappoint us. 
because we're always expecting the wrong things from it. But here, God gives us no, no basis for this sort of illusion. And there's two sorts, of, two sorts of ways that the curse impacts us. Number one is just physically. You look at verse 17. We see here that God is cursing the ground. Now, this is much more you know, widespread than simply the notion that your, your yard and my yard are virtually on fire right now. Like, right, Dante's Inferno. Like, I, I see all of you, we, we join the lines of the cursed at Walmart trying to buy those $5 sprinkler heads, right, to, to, to give relief to our, to our lawn. Now, certainly that's in view, okay? Certainly this idea that, that no, not work is not cursed, but the, it's hard, there's toil, there's frustration, we're not guaranteed necessarily a return on our hard work. I mean, generally we like to say that's true, but we know oftentimes it's not. Ask the farmer. Ask the man, the woman who's invested their life in a company only to have their throats split one day and sent packing. We, we know that there's no ultimate guarantee for, for the fruitfulness of labor, But see, this idea of the ground being cursed, it extends beyond just that things are hard or difficult or physically taxing. It also pertains to our bodies, right? See, isn't it interesting that when God put Adam in the garden and told him to work it, the ground was submitted to him. And that night he's in the garden, he's digging, he's irrigating, he's doing all these, these cool things. He's sort of master of the dirt. But now with the curse... You can see how that's completely reversed, right? Now the ground is master of you. The ground is master of me. Literally one day the earth will swallow all of us up, right? We will be in the ground, ash to ashes, dust to dust. This is part of the reversal of the beautiful creation that God has given is this curse upon the physical world. Women, you know all too well the biological complexities and difficulties of bearing children, right? We, we, had, we, had a, we had a new mom in the first service, and I used her as an illustration. Then I said, I bet childbearing really was difficult. She was like, no, I had a C-section. I was like, great. But you get what I'm saying. Like the after the, after the C-section, I'm sure that's been difficult. Yes, it has. But it's not just childbearing. We all get that. It's child-rearing. Isn't that true? Sometimes child rearing can just be incredibly physically taxing. You're following your children around with a broom and a dustpan like you're a cast member at Magic Kingdom after a parade. Remember those guys? They just come right behind you. No litter allowed, okay, in that place. That's how we are as parents. We're just constantly trying to manage the entropy, the chaos that's sort of invaded our home. But it's the home that most vividly shows us that The curse is not just physical, right? The curse is very relational. If you look back at the the text, God gives this curse on the serpent, but then he gives this curse to the woman and to Adam. And as you sort of unpack this and read through it, what you are realizing is that this one flesh relationship that God has created for man and woman. And let me just say something about that. The last few weeks, we've been talking about the beauty of the one flesh relationship. 
and how God has created man and woman, two genders, two genders only, not, not a social construct, but equal in the image of God, of, of equal worth, but of different roles, of different functions, and that there's this beautiful harmony in that. And as man is man, as woman is woman, as God created us to be, there is a one flesh coming together. But literally, the reversal of the fall means that instead of two, two people merging together into one flesh, man and wife, you now have two people who are literally tearing the flesh from one another. See, that's what the fall does. Men, the fall will, will, will take what is supposed to be your joyful, sacrificial, loving leadership, and it will turn it into passivity in front of the TV. It, it, will, it will turn it into tyranny and power and oppression. And women, you will grow to resent it. You will, you will grow to want to, to wanna throw it off. You're, you're going to be tempted to think, I can do it better, and you probably could. And so what is this joyous harmony and oneness that God has instituted for us in the home is sort of flipped upside down. And instead of one flesh, we're at war in our flesh against each other. And whether you're man, woman, child, Christian, non-Christian, old, young, rich, poor, doesn't matter what race, background, what country you raised in or born, you get all that, right? In fact, you would say, I, I, don't, I don't even have to read the Bible to know all that's true, Pastor Paul. But there is something you do need the Bible for, and this brings us to our second point, that these physical and relational curses that God has pronounced upon the human race are all symptomatic of an even greater curse. And this one is spiritual. So let's talk about the spiritual curse, the expulsion from the garden that Adam and Eve experienced. Now, if you, were, if you interviewed Adam and Eve and you were to ask them, maybe we'll get this chance one day, what was the worst part of the fall for you? I just bet it's not going to have to do with childbearing or tedious work or being hot on a summer's day or any of those sorts of things. I think it's going to be the unfolding of events as we find them in verses 23 and 24. And let me, let me read those for us. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Let me just say this, again, emphasizing the physical aspect of the curse. At one time, God, Adam was master of the ground in the garden, but now he's sent out into the hostile world, the ground will be master of him. But listen to what he says in verse 24. He, meaning God, drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what is, what is that about? The word in verse 24, drove them, literally means to expel, to divorce to cast out from one's presence. Knowing statistics, probably every single person in this room has been impacted by a, by a marital divorce in some way. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was you. Maybe, um, maybe it's your children or grandchildren. And you know what a horrific experience that sort of thing can be. It's almost worse 
and in some ways is than a physical death. It can feel like your, your flesh is being literally torn away from your soul as everything you've come to lean and depend and love is sort of ripped and taken away from you. See, that's the word. And it says that Adam and Eve were in the garden enjoying unfettered access to God. See, they were naked and, and unashamed. They were, they were experiencing incredible joy and peace. There was no embarrassment. There was no hiding. There was just joy unspeakable waking up every morning. But now God sends them outside. He literally expels them from his presence. And it says here in the text, if you look back at verse 24, it says that he sets up cherubim with a flaming sword. That's just an angel. There's an angel with a flaming sword that's sort of guarding the way so that Adam and Eve can't get back into the presence of God. It's not just simply about getting back into the garden to eat some of the good fruit. It's about having access to God and seeing him face to face as they once did. See, what's interesting about this picture of an angel guarding the way. And, 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 and again, here, listen to the play on words. At one time, it was Adam who was set aside to what? Guard the garden. But now, God is guarding the garden from him. And the significance of these angels is, is and let me just take this back for a minute to the first weeks that we started talking about Genesis to help us understand this. Remember, Moses is writing this to the Israelites who were in the wilderness. He had just come out of Egypt, and they're wondering, where did all this come from? How did things go wrong? How did we get here? Who are we? What's our, what's our foundation? What are our beginnings? And part of what God told the Israelites to do once they were delivered from Egypt, they were to set up the tent of meeting, the, 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 the tabernacle, the portable, the portable temple. And inside this temple sacrifices were offered. And this is where the priests interceded on behalf of the people. And there was the Holy of Holies. And this was a sacred place. It's where God met with Moses who represented the people. But what's interesting is that at the innermost sanctum of the tent of meeting of the tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest Aaron and his descendants could only go there one time a year. That's all they dared risk to go. Because this was a precious, holy place. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The, the Ten Commandments were there. The, the manna from the feedings and the wanderings in the wilderness was there. But there was also a veil that separated the people and the priests from the Holy of Holies. Interestingly, what do you think was embroidered on that veil? It was cherubim. It was the angels. See, it was symbolic of this idea that the holiness of God, his presence, was not to be breached. It was to be guarded and honored at all costs. But once the priest was in there, and for the very brief moment, he would have seen the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant is what? Again, a pair of cherubim. Angels. Again, guarding the holy presence of God. 
And when Israel was reading this story, they would have totally understood what Moses was doing here. He, he was drawing comparison to this idea that no one entered the presence of God except the high priest. But here are Adam and Eve experiencing a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. They were being sent outside the garden to wonder in futility. You see, in, in, in that time, as the Israelites were camped around this tent of meeting, the worst fate that could befall an Israelite was to be sent outside the camp to wonder. And it wasn't just the physical death they would experience. It was much more the spiritual separation they experienced from God's people and from God himself. And every time Adam and Eve saw that cherubim, and I, and I think it was a, it was a real thing. It wasn't, it's not merely figurative. It's, it's, it's a real place, a real angel, a real sword. They would have been reminded it is impossible for us to get back to the presence of God. Did you realize that? That there is nothing from a human perspective you or I can do to make things right with a holy God. No amount of going to church, no amount of good works, no amount of deeds of social justice, no matter how kindly you treat your spouse or your kids, all of us are east of Eden. Just a question. Where are you in your life right now, maybe particularly experiencing the curse or the reality of the curse in your life? Where in your life do you just feel like God's gone dark? This area is without hope. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a job, a financial situation. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's, it's a relationship. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a, a medical condition. Maybe it's a secret that you and only you in the entire world knows about. Where are you experiencing the effects of that? Adam and Eve were. We have to ask the question then, as they are sent east from Eden, as we find ourselves east of Eden, what hope has God given us? Because let me tell you, folks, if that's the only news that we have, that is terrible news. It is bad news. It's the worst news if it's true, then we just, and there's no solution. We ought to simply eat, drink, and be merry. Let's make the most of this vaporous life because there's really ultimately no hope for us anyway. But Genesis 3 contains what many theologians, and I would have to agree, might contain maybe, I said maybe, so don't email, maybe the most important verse in the Bible. Let's look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot contained in this verse. And let me just try to do a quick flyover to get the pertinent points of why this is very well maybe the, the greatest promise in all of the Bible. It's certainly going to be the promise that resonates in the ears of Adam and Eve as they are being expelled out of the garden. 
And the idea is simply this. It seems that God is saying there, there's going to be two genealogical lines of the human race. Just two. Which means that the, ultimately there are just two kinds of people. And the greatest thing separating us is not race. It's not socioeconomic status. It's not education. Although all those things are important and relevant in their own context. According to Genesis 3, there are two kinds of people, two groups of people, two only. There's natural humanity. They are represented by the serpent. They are those who have turned their back on God. They have their fists raised to God. They're in rebellion to God. It doesn't mean that you can't be one of those people and be in church. You absolutely can. You just, it's easier to hide it in church. But still say things like, you know, I want to call the shots. I want to be the master of my domain. I, I, I'm the boss of my life. But there's natural humanity, those who don't know God, those who reject him. And then there's going to be spiritual humanity. This is represented by the woman. These are going to be the people that God saves for himself. These are going to be the, the, the people of God, the elect, the, the family of God that God is in the process of gathering from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And what we have from this point forward in Genesis 3.15 is the unleashing of God's grace. Because even as he is sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, expelling them, he is making a way for them and for you and for me to return. See, this idea of, of crushing the head of Satan, we, we get that, right? For those of you in the military, you, you understand this. If you want to take someone out, you take the headshot. And here we, we, we get a vivid picture of that. Jesus is going to crush the head of Satan. And in the way he's going to do that, he is, he is going to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place, on our behalf, so that our sin is removed from us. Jesus is going to be, became a curse for us. We need to think about this for a second. We read this passage in Galatians 3 earlier. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was condemned in your place and in my place. See, that's, that's the way that God will gather up his people. And what we see, and we see this all through the Bible, it's, it's, it's the unifying theme of the Bible, is that God has an unrelenting pursuit of grace in your life and my life through his son. Every time it looks hopeless for humanity, God's grace wins. We, we see this next week, Cain and Abel. Abel was to be the carrier of the seed, the promised Messiah. What happens? Cain kills Abel. All hope is lost, except that what? God raises up Seth. He becomes the line of promise. Then as we progress into Genesis and we find the whole earth is wicked, is there any righteous? There's none, not one, but God saves one man in his family, Noah, to be the father of all nations. They get off the ark, and Noah's no better, is he? Noah's no better. He's getting drunk, and he's carousing around, and bad things are happening. And God says, I'm going to save my people through a remnant. I'm going to choose a man from the nations called Abram. And I'm going to bless all the nations through him. And if you want to, if you want to get a glimpse of the glory of God this summer, 
remember that your Bible is not just a set of stories and moralisms. It is, it is a unified book built around this redemptive theme of God's grace pursuing his people. But it came at great cost. See, one of the things that we kind of skip over here, we, we, we get the he shall bruise your head, right? Literally means to crush. Satan will crush the head. I mean, Jesus will crush the head of Satan. But it says you shall bruise his heel. And, and that, that seems a little obscure to us. What does that mean? What's so bad about being wounded in the foot, we might ask? Have you ever had a foot injury? You know this, right? So when I was without a car for a while, I began walking back and forth from here to church and developed this awful thing some of the doctors called plantar something, fasciitis. Anyway, it was something that hurt like crazy, right? This term, Achilles heel. Or how did they prevent slaves from escaping? They would often, what, cut off their toe. See, a foot injury affects every part of the body in a lot of ways. It hinders mobility. It hinders quality of life and functioning. What's the point here? Jesus was going to have to undergo a suffering, a death, that was incredibly costly. You see, Jesus, now here's the picture. Jesus is the high priest. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He is the only one that can get past the cherubim. He is the only one that can go into the holy of holies, the presence of God. He's the only one that can walk past that flaming torch at the Garden of Eden. He's the high priest. He's perfect. But here's, here's the deal. Jesus doesn't, as the high priest, doesn't come back into the garden or the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice. Jesus comes back into the Holy of Holies as the sacrifice. He comes back in and he lays himself down. He, he dies this death, and Romans 8.32 says it this way. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, does God really kill people? Yes. No one has the right to live. The wages of sin are death. The soul that sins shall surely die. But the way that God rescues you and me from this is that God kills, offers up his own son, Jesus. He sends Jesus outside the camp. He casts Jesus from his presence. He curses his own son with your sin and with my sin so that we can today walk back into that garden, past the cherubim, into his holy presence, not because of us and how great we are, but because of Jesus' sacrificial death for us. Does it feel like your life is cursed right now? Do you feel like you're living under some sort of cloud, some sort of incantation, something that just speaks evil and malediction against you? Feel it no more. 
Jesus died was cursed for you and me to give us life so that we could know him. Let's pray.